Friday was Veterans Day, as you know. I think we would be remiss if we didn't recognize our veterans today. So, those of you that served in the United States Army, would you stand up? Any Army veterans here? Dan Powell. Thank you for your service, Dan. United States Marine Corps. Any Marines? Edith, you can stand for Martin if you want to. So, yeah. The United States Air Force. I know we got one of those. Yeah. This past year, Larry and Linda have got to go out to the actual plane that you served in and flew in in your time of service that's been refurbished and everything restored. It doesn't have two wings either. Oh, so it won't fly anymore. Okay. All right. Uh, anyone here that served in the United States Navy? Back there. Fred Williams. My dad served in the Navy. And anyone from the United States Coast Guard, sometimes the forgotten branch, it seems like. No Coast Guard veterans. Well, thank you all for your service to our country. Gene was in the Navy. Yes. Yes. All right. We'll take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. During World War II... And some of the battles in the Pacific area, a sailor in a United States submarine was stricken with acute appendicitis and was near death. There was no surgeon on board the submarine. In fact, the nearest surgeon was thousands of miles away. But the sailor's friend, pharmacist mate Wheeler Lipes, and you'll see a picture of him up here, he was watching his friend's fever as it climbed to 106 degrees. Wow. And the man's only hope, obviously, was an appendectomy, an operation, but no surgeon on board. But Lipes told his buddy, by the way, Lipes' nickname was Doc, since he was a pharmacist mate. So Doc said to his buddy, I've watched doctors do this operation. I think I can do it. What do you say? And his friend consented. What did he have to lose? He was going to die anyway. So in the ward room, the patient was stretched out on a table beneath a floodlight. The mate and the assisting officers dressed themselves in pajama tops turned inside out. They masked their faces with gauze. The crew stood by the diving planes to keep the submarine steady. I looked up what a diving plane was. It, another name for it was a hydroplane, but it, it's the little things that go out from a sub that can... for the antiseptic 
and they got tablespoons from the kitchen and bent them to keep the muscles open. In fact, if you research this, you'll even see a picture of Lipe with the bent tablespoons. After cutting through the layers of muscle, the mate took 20 minutes to find the appendix. Two and a half hours later, the last cat gut stitch was sewn just as the last drop of ether gave out. Thirteen days later, the sailor was back at work. Wow. It was a great accomplishment. Greater than the appendectomies done by surgeons. Not because it was better, because it wasn't. Greater because an unskilled shipmate performed the surgery. Now that story helps us to understand a strange promise that Jesus made to his disciples shortly before he left this earth. He said in the upper room, according to John 14, 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go to the Father. And so the apostles... And the church, you and I, we Christians today, can do greater works than Jesus. Not because they're greater works, but because of who we are. Frail, sinful human beings empowered by the Holy Spirit. Luke 9, these first nine verses, describes the apostles being empowered by Jesus to perform miracles of driving out demons and healing the sick. And these might well be the greater works that would characterize their ministry after Christ ascended into heaven, kind of a dress rehearsal for their ministry after the day of Pentecost. It also, I think, reveals the principles of gospel ministry that's necessary to fulfill the Great Commission. And it comes here at the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry, not long before he sets his sights on Jerusalem. In fact, later on in this chapter, in verse 51, it says, And when the days were approaching for his ascension, he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. That begins the travel narratives of the gospel because he's on his way to die. So this is at the conclusion of the Galilean ministry as he's getting set, not many days from now, to head to the cross. So he brings the twelve together and he sends them on this brief preaching tour here. So notice verse 1, he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. So Luke records here, the apostles' empowerment for ministry. Jesus gave them power. The word for power here comes from the Greek word dunamis. We get our word dynamite from that. So that type of power, a power that denotes ability, uh, capacity, energy, and force. Jesus equipped them with the power, the ability that they needed to go do this to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And then he also gave them authority from the Greek word exousia. The authority was the right to use the power. 
So in a moment's time, the apostles were endowed with both power and authority. That had to be a pretty heady experience, don't you think? I mean, in a moment's time, they had this ability and, and, and authority to do this. Life provides these fleeting moments, I think, uh, of, of these, these experiences where, where we have power. It can start off as a toddler when he first gets his little hands on the remote control for the TV. Imagine that. Suddenly he can turn the world on and off. He can make people, adults, appear and disappear just with the push of a button. And in fact, with that little black box in his hand, he seems to control the whole household. And in his thinking, maybe the whole world. He's got power, so he thinks. Or, or maybe you remember the day that you passed your driver's test and you got your driver's license and you sat for the very first time in the car with the keys by yourself. First time I drove a car by myself, I went to Adkins Grocery for a loaf of bread at Sumner, if you remember where the grocery store was. Yeah. And you're sitting there by yourself, you turn the ignition key, and you feel that engine come to life. And what do you do? You rev it up a few times. Yeah. That, 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 that power, you felt like you were in control. You had power. But those, those little experiences are nothing compared to the rush the apostles had to feel when given power and authority to drive out all demons, and to cure diseases. This was Jesus' power. They possessed the power of the sender, and the sender was Jesus. And the immediate context leaves no doubt as to the range of their power. They had ability to deliver people's souls from demons, just like Jesus had done when he cast the demons out of that man, the gathering demoniac. The demons came out and begged to go into the pigs. They had the kind of power that Jesus exercised when he did that and left that man there sitting clothed in his right mind. They possessed the power to heal human bodies like Jesus had done with that woman that had had the hemorrhage for 12 years. Such power, kingdom power, God's power, it was even more remarkable because of who they were. Uneducated Galilean men, some of them fishermen. Imagine what it must have been like for them when they heard evil spirits cry out to them begging for mercy. Or think what it would be like to heal a terminal disease. Or to touch a feverish child and see the fever disappear while that frantic parent is still holding that child in their arms. Or imagine what it would have been like to see a leper's leprosy disappear before your very eyes or to see a cripple get up and jump for joy power and authority what would you do if you had that kind of power some of you would immediately go to the hospital and empty every minute others of you might head to a nursing home to heal a loved one. 
Some of you would go to that loved one, your relative that has a terminal disease. I mean, just think what, what we would do if we had that power and that authority. Heady stuff, I, I think so. It's, it's conceivable that some of, some of these apostles would become puffed up and think, look what I can do. I can kill disease. I can kill evil. I can take care of demons. But evidently that's not how they saw it because they humbly knew their power was derived from Christ himself. It, it was humbling to think that God would actually use them in such a way. But he did. But notice verse 2. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. So as great as their powers were, the message they were sent out with was even greater. You see, their real work was not to heal the sick and cast out demons. Yes, he gave them power and authority to do that, and that was very thrilling. But I think that was incidental. Their greatest work was to preach the kingdom of God. So what did they preach? Well, they preached that the kingdom of God had come. Mark 6, verse 12, in his account of this, says they went out and told people everywhere they needed to repent. Later, in Luke 11, verse 20, Jesus would say, But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come to you. Well, what were the apostles doing? Driving out demons, healing the sick. The kingdom of God had come to the people. Kingdom power indicates the presence of the kingdom. Jesus would also say in Luke 17, 20 and 21, in answer to the Pharisees' question about when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus said the kingdom of God does not come visibly, nor will people say here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. So the grand truth is the kingdom of God is the reign of God. It's the sovereignty of God. The apostles were to preach the kingdom of God and its nearness to everyone. They were to tell men and women that they were under it. They could come into it. It was there. They had waited for it. It was present. They were to tell them the benefits that were available. If they come into that kingdom, they preached that God reigns. And that people must repent. Our world today needs to hear that message. The kingdom of God has come. And people still need to repent. And if you notice on down in verse 6, it's called preaching the gospel. It says, in departing, they began going about among the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. That was positive preaching. That was good news. Yes, it called for repentance from sin, but it was good news. And for any Jew that was waiting on the kingdom of God and for the Messiah, it called for that repentance. It was good news to the Jews. Good news, the kingdom of God's come. It is here. It's yours if you'll accept it. But notice the approach they were to take in verses 3 through 6. The power, their power and message, that was enhanced by the unique ministerial approach that Jesus demanded of them. It says, He said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money, 
Do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there. Take your leave from there. And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And departing, they began going about among the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So to say they were to travel light is an understatement. <laughs> I mean, they went beyond light to nothing at all. Later on in chapter 22, Jesus will basically say from that point on to take a purse, take a bag, take a robe, even take a sword. And so we understand that the instructions given here in Luke chapter 9 were not literally meant for everyone in all ages that would preach the gospel. But the reason Jesus ordered them to travel light, I think, was for one thing to avoid looking like some of the false missionaries in the ancient world that made personal profit from their preaching. But maybe the main reason was that Jesus just wanted the twelve to learn to trust him for everything. Faith in him was to be the foundation of their ministry. There was also to be no hotel hopping for the twelve. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. They weren't to seek better quarters, but just be content where they were. They were. In terms of our day, if uh, you wound up in a Motel 6, don't look for a Holiday Inn Express. All right? I mean, if there's no hot tub or air conditioning, stay there anyway. You know, comfort seekers really haven't done hardly anything for the cause of Christ, have they? A committed life is oftentimes an uncomfortable life. It's sometimes a tired life, too, because it'll put itself out for others. And it's often inconvenient and many times even taken advantage of. And Jesus told them that if there should be a hostile reception to shake the dust off your feet when you leave their town is a testimony against them. Now, were the apostles supposed to be short-fused and hot-headed? Well, no, but rather this shaking of the dust off their feet was a dramatically gracious warning to those that would reject the kingdom message. It was customary in that day for a pious religious Jew that had traveled abroad into a pagan country that when they returned to their homeland, they would shake the dust of the alien lands from their feet and their clothing. It was a way to disassociate themselves from the pollution of those pagan lands and the judgment they believed that would come upon those lands. And so the same action by the apostles would symbolically declare a hostile Jewish village to be pagan or even Gentile-like. This was a merciful prophetic act designed to make the people think twice, to think deeply about their spiritual condition. And it may well be that that very act of shaking dust off their feet in the presence of those that would reject the message may have turned some people to the message. And listen, in our world today, in the culture we live in today, there's going to have to be some occasions today where the church is going to have to shake the dust from its shoes and declare that rejection of Christ puts people in eternal peril. There are times to disassociate ourselves from sinful society and do what we can to help them see 
the danger of rejecting the gospel. That takes boldness and that takes courage, but there are times when it's necessary. What was it Jesus said? Don't cast your pearls before and don't give what's holy to the dogs. That's tough stuff. So Jesus' directions of the twelve here were designed to bring about massive ministerial effects. The dual gifts of authority and power got everyone's attention by delivering the people's souls from demons and their bodies from disease. And, and those miracles were proof that the kingdom of God had come to them. But those miracles also gave an authenticity to the message they were preaching. If these men can do that, then the kingdom of God has come. That means that what they're preaching, we need to listen to. It caused people to hear the message. Their message was the kingdom of God had come. That is the sovereign reign of God. And the power and the authority and the message was enhanced by their approach, which symbolized this was of the greatest urgency. They preached with only the shirts on their backs. They gave no thought as to where they would lay their heads. They dramatically portrayed judgment on anyone that would reject the gospel by shaking off the dust. Everything they said, everything they did, emphasized the urgency of the huge claims of their message. And their ministry, by Christ's own definition, was a greater ministry than his because they were such ordinary, fallible people. You know, one of the big things that the church misses today, that we Christians just don't seem to have, Urgency. Right? Urgency. To proclaim the gospel. Well, what was the effect of their ministry? Luke tells us of the effect through the eyes of Herod. It says, Now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was happening. He was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared. And by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. And Herod said, I myself had John beheaded. But who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. So Herod, and in effect the entire population of Galilee, had begun to ask the big question of who Jesus was. Who exactly was Jesus? Was he just one more prophet? Just one more holy man? Or were they experiencing an invasion from heaven? Was this the Messiah? So Herod was asking that kind of question, all the Galileans. You see, this is where all apostolic preaching ultimately went. It went to the person of Jesus Christ. To say, this is who Jesus is. The people wondered who he was, where he came from. Was he the Messiah? There were people asking that question. Their perplexity set the stage for the great truth that would become so evident after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. This was God's Son from heaven. In fact, later in this chapter, after the feeding of the 5,000 and before the transfiguration, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And then ask them, 
Who do you say that I am? It's in this same chapter. Now, if this was the effect of the apostles' preaching in the days before the resurrection of Christ, don't you think it should be the effect of all the preaching since that time? We're failing miserably in our task if our preaching, and by the word preaching, I'm talking about the sharing of our faith, all right? We're failing in that if the sharing of our faith Gives people, that the impre- gives people the impression that the kingdom of God is mainly concerned with promoting a, a way of life. Or that it's a message of how Christ can improve your marriage or your finances or your sex life or your parenting or whatever. And of course the kingdom of God affects all of those things. But our preaching, our, the sharing of our faith fails if it doesn't bring people to see the crucial question of who Jesus is. And that he's coming in glory to judge the living and the the dead. You see, when we share our faith, people ought to consider who is Jesus. Because Jesus is the gospel. Who is he? And if people will get to that point, if the sharing of our faith gets people to consider who Jesus is, not just that they can have a better life, but who is this man? Is he God? And we know that he is, right? Is he the Son of God? We know that he is. But if people will consider that and say, if this man is God in the flesh, if he's the Son of God, and if, as the Bible says, he has all authority in heaven and on earth. That means he has authority over me. And I better pay attention to who he is and what he says. You see, that's where we've got to get people to consider who Jesus is. Our preaching must be Christ-centered. All of Scripture points to Jesus, all of it. You remember on the road to Emmaus after he's risen from the dead? And he's kind of incognito, the two guys walking on the road to Emmaus don't realize that it's Jesus that they're talking to. And it says in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, that beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. All the scriptures that they had at that time, they didn't have the New Testament then. But can you imagine, wouldn't you like to have been there as Jesus started in Genesis and moved through the law and the books of history, then through the Psalms, and then through all the prophets explaining what it all said about him? Man, our hearts would have burned just like theirs did. Because the gospel is Jesus. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, What I received I passed on to you as a first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And when Christ is preached like that, there is a sense in which God's people, you and I, do greater works than He did while on earth. Because though it's an incredibly great work for Christ to regenerate and save a sin-sick soul, It's an even greater work when he does it through you and me. His people. What grace. 
and what privilege and how we ought to praise him. And listen, folks, Glenn and Cindy, you can come back up because I'm done. But Jesus gives us the power and the authority, even today, to take the gospel everywhere we can. And we may not have the power and authority to perform miracles as the apostles did, but God can still save people through us when we tell them about Christ. And our world and our culture is growing worse and worse. They need Jesus. We've got the power and the authority to take Jesus to them. And Jesus equips us to do that. But the question is, will we? And will we sense the urgency? The return of Christ is a day closer than it was yesterday. And how many days will it be before God says, all right, it's time. I don't know that day. You don't know that day. But we need to develop an urgency like the apostles had, like the apostle Paul had, like Timothy had, like Titus had, like others had. That's the message. You're going to have to determine what you're going to do with it. And if there's a public decision you'd like to make in any way, you can meet me down front as we stand, as we sing.